Hello and welcome to Pod Bless Canada. My name is Ken Coates. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonnell Lurie Institute. We're here with uh, Dwight Newman, who is uh, one of Canada's leading scholars of Indigenous rights in the natural resource sector. He's a Canada Research Chair in the College of Law at the University of Saskatchewan. And his research chair specializes in Indigenous rights, looking at both the constitutional and the international sort of aspects of that. Dwight is delighted to have you with us here uh, at this session. And we're sorry you can't be there in person, but there's many people gathered in, in Ottawa to debate this discussion about the future of Indigenous participation in the natural resource economy. So I've got a series of questions I'd like you to answer and, and address for us. The first one is, how have Supreme Court decisions over the last 20 years changed Indigenous involvement in the natural resource economy? I'm very glad to be part of this discussion. And sorry that I can't be there in Ottawa in person. In terms of this question of how uh, Supreme Court of Canada decisions have changed the Indigenous role in the natural resource economy over the last 20 years, I think there are a lot of different things that we could say. On the one hand, I think there have been a number of clarifications on substantive rights uh, held by Indigenous communities, but also a lot of uncertainties that have been left um, or ways in which those rights haven't been expanded, particularly in relation to natural resources. Um, at the same time, there have been a number of procedural rights established that have taken on much more significance than it might first have been realized that they would have. And there I'm talking particularly about the duty to consult doctrine. And so I could talk about those two aspects a little bit. In terms of the substantive rights, so rights held under Section 35, uh, we would go back just over 20 years to the mid-1990s to a period where there were a lot of clarifications or attempts at clarifications from the court. The Vanderpeet decision in 1996 saw the court develop a test uh, for Aboriginal rights under Section 35. As it's turned out, that test has not been very good in terms of any kind of commercial rights for Aboriginal communities in terms of the court's later interpretations and applications of it. Uh, they developed uh, an Aboriginal title test in Delgamuk in 1997, where they applied Vanderpeet but adapted it to the title context. And then, of course, uh, there have been later cases on title, um, and most significantly, the, the Silcotine decision in 2014. Um, and there, there certainly are some land rights established for communities that are in parts of the country where there had not been treaties reached. Um, but there have been a lot of ambiguities left in the decision about the exact scope of resource rights associated with title. Uh, and so I actually think uh, that these various decisions on the substantive rights side haven't done all that much to offer clarifications in the ways uh, that might have been hoped. In some ways, the court is trying to leave a lot of room for negotiations and for finding a path forward together. And that's where the duty to consult doctrine comes in. The duty to consult doctrine developed especially since 2004 in a, in a new form in the Haida Nation decision. And then uh, with various other later decisions speaking about it in various ways, in some ways looks like this procedural right uh, that where the crown might have effects on an indigenous community's rights, uh, that there needs to be a consultation about that potential effect. In practical terms, that doctrine has had a lot of effects in terms of the Indigenous role in the natural resource economy. Uh, companies seeking to engage 
in resource development in areas within the traditional territories of Indigenous communities want to engage early with those Indigenous communities and in many cases actually will enter into negotiations directly with the Indigenous communities rather than leave things up to governments under this, uh, this doctrine that the court had developed. And the doctrine has thus really leveraged a role for Indigenous communities and really helped support a lot of the development around impact benefit agreements and other types of Indigenous industry agreements uh, that are really contributing to a prominent role for Indigenous communities in the natural resource economy. Excellent. It's really helpful to sort of frame out how these legal sort of decisions have shaped something very important over time in Canada and made a huge impact, I think, on Indigenous participation. So perhaps to be a bit more precise, in a practical and legal sense, how much authority have these different Supreme Court of Canada rulings given Indigenous people over the natural resource economy? Do they really have effect? Are they they're really giving power to Indigenous communities? So if we're thinking about how much authority these decisions have given to Indigenous communities or recognized in Indigenous communities over the natural resource economy, I would say we need to differentiate between the legal authority and the practical authority. And the legal authority under these decisions is actually more limited than is often uh, portrayed. So the duty to consult doctrine uh, you get the courts repeatedly stating this is not a veto, uh, not a veto power of any sort. And in fact, they say governments could proceed with consultation and make a decision contrary to the wishes of Indigenous communities. Under the legal doctrine, the legal rights are actually surprisingly limited in some ways, at least so far as recognized by the court to date. But the practical side is very different, and companies don't want things wound up in legal disputes. That's not good for companies, it's not good for Indigenous communities, and so there are actually practical ways where there can be a movement forward, and there can be a lot more practical authority by Indigenous communities, either under rights that the courts haven't recognized as yet, uh, or simply under the application of the existing rights uh, that have been recognized, but in ways that on a pure legal scale wouldn't necessarily give as much authority as there might be on the practical side. And so the duty to consult doctrine is again an example where in pure legal terms, governments could end up fulfilling this uh, without uh, changing all that much about what they're doing, but that gives rise to disputes if that's the route forward. And so it's actually much better for industry and Indigenous communities to find win-win agreements and to find paths forward that avoid legal disputes. And so in practical terms, the Indigenous community has a chance to engage with industry under this, uh, this doctrine that the court has offered. So you've described, uh, Dwight, a very fluid situation. We always look to the law for precision. We want to know exactly what it means, exactly what power is there. You've just described a situation where there's an awful lot of flexibility and nuance and the practicalities can be as important as the actual legal sort of aspects. So to, to look forward a little bit, um, what are the major legal questions in terms of Indigenous rights that remain outstanding in the area of natural resource uh, development? And of these issues, which ones are likely to be litigated in the coming years? So if we're talking about the issues that remain outstanding, the legal issues that could be litigated 
in the coming years. I'm actually going to say, I don't think very many will be litigated in the coming years. I think some might be litigated in the coming decades. And that's not really fast enough for indigenous communities that are seeking to deal with practical problems right now. Many of the cases uh, in terms of the litigation effort involved are enormously lengthy proceedings. The, the Silcotine decision on Aboriginal title at the Supreme Court of Canada took years to get there. And at trial, it involved 360 trial days, which is a massive investment in terms of the legal cost and in terms of the time to get it on through litigation. I do think that there are a lot of outstanding legal issues on Aboriginal title that could end up getting litigated. I've actually heard uh, some Crown lawyers say that they think there are another 30 or 40 cases to define the various different parameters of Aboriginal title. And I don't see that as very helpful to anyone to have 30 or 40 major Aboriginal title cases litigated. I don't think we'll see it in the next few years. We might see it in the next few decades, but there there are uncertainties and they could be litigated. In treaty areas, there are major differences around the interpretation, for example, of the historic treaties on resource issues. In a number of the numbered treaties, there are these issues on was there an agreement to share the land in full? Was there an agreement to share land to the depth of a plow? Uh, these types of underlying legal issues, they could be litigated, but then one party is going to win and one party is going to lose. And there may actually be win-win routes forward that get negotiated instead, rather than this being litigated. And so I don't see it being litigated in the next few years. If there aren't negotiated solutions found, maybe it will be negotiated, or maybe it will be litigated rather in the next few decades. And again, it's, it's not fast enough for anyone given the urgency of a lot of the, the issues involved. We could see litigation around the significance of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And some of that litigation will happen if Bill C-262 is passed through the Senate, which is a bill on uh, UNDRIP implementation. Uh, in fact, I've heard lawyers at industry conferences talking about uh, the large number of litigated issues that they foresee under this, uh, this act if that moves forward. Uh, whether that moves forward or not, I think there will be some litigation around the significance of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It's already being brought up in a lot of the cases. And there are arguments on does that change the duty to consult into free prior and informed consent, things like that. There will be ongoing discussions on and possible litigation on. But again, I'm not sure it will happen in the next few years. It might happen over the next few decades, but there may be ways to negotiate and head off uh, the need to litigate over things and to find more constructive paths forward. So those would be some of the types of things that might be litigated. Um, there are a lot of uh, other types of questions about, around Section 35 Aboriginal rights that could be litigated. But again, if they're negotiated in a more constructive way, that may be better for everyone. You mentioned the Chilcotin decision and the fact that it took a long time and, and obviously cost a lot of money. Can you give us a bit of a sense of the time frames you're talking about? Um, like how long did the Chilcotin decision take from when the Chilcotin folks first brought it in to when it was actually resolved? Uh, secondly, how much did it cost to actually for all the participants in it, if you know? And, and did it have an effect? 
I remember in 2014 when Chilcotin came in, first ever recognition of, of um, indigenous uh, ownership of traditional lands in a very dramatic way. People are talking about this as revolutionary. It's four years on. Um, has the revolution started or is it already over? So in terms of the costs, um, time-wise and financially, of the Chilcotin decision and the effects of the Chilcotin decision, there are a lot of different things that we could say there. I think in terms of the timelines, we could actually say that the underlying disputes were actually from decades prior to when it reached the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, there were some attempts to negotiate that were unsuccessful. And so I've just talked about negotiation could be a constructive path forward. If it's not, then there might be litigation decades down the road. But uh, even from when the litigation was commenced to when it actually reached a final decision at the Supreme Court of Canada, we're actually talking about over a decade there, or around a decade there. Now, there were some attempts along the way to negotiate based on some of the decisions on the way up, but uh, still a very significant length of time there. And it's very difficult to get a major uh, case from the beginnings of trial to a Supreme Court of Canada decision in under about five years for these types of cases at the fastest. And that's, that's a long time to be in litigation. Now, on Aboriginal title, the standards of proof that the Supreme Court of Canada has set out are complicated. They're challenging to meet. So the case involved 360 or so trial days. Each of those trial days, you have a lot of lawyers sitting there. A lot of lawyers have spent a lot of time preparing for each of those trial days. Um, so the estimates that I've seen are that on the Indigenous side, the litigation costs were in the range of 20 or $30 million. On the government side, one would probably put on at least the same kind of estimate. Now, how you calculate that becomes a little different because it's justice lawyers more so than private lawyers. But if you attributed the full cost to it, we're talking about litigation that's costing $50 million plus to resolve that particular case. And what's come of it? At the time in 2014, it was treated uh, by some as a game changer. In some ways it is. Uh, I mean, it sets a very significant legal precedent and says some very significant things about title. Although, because it involved a change from prior things the Supreme Court of Canada had said, we actually don't know if the Supreme Court would say the same things the next time a title case would come to the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of real challenges around instability and the, the way the court has engaged with precedent in this area. But set that aside, is it has the case had practical effects? Yes, in the sense that it, it's led to the recognition of a particular area of land under Chilcotin uh, title, but there are a lot of lingering issues around what that's meant. And there's been uh, some ongoing negotiation around other areas of land. Did it get $50 million of issues sorted out? Or would there need to be more spent to sort out some of these, uh, these things? I mean, there's, there are a lot of complicated questions to ask in terms of the costs and benefits of litigation as opposed to other ways of finding uh, constructive solutions. Very, very interesting. <clears throat> so from your legal perspective, and you've got a remarkable national and international view on sort of what's happened in terms of indigenous rights. I know you spent time in Australia and the United Kingdom and the United States looking at these kinds of issues. How do you see indigenous engagement in the natural resource economy changing in the next 10 to 20 years? 
as you sort of go from here going forward, I asked you before about going backwards the last 20 years. We've seen a huge change. Are we going to see, have we reached the status quo? Are we just going to go along the same path? Or do you see these legal rights changing Indigenous participation in the resource economy dramatically? So in thinking about what we might see in the, the years ahead in terms of Indigenous participation in the natural resource economy, I think we will see some very different things than we've been seeing before. And uh, frankly, some of the developments actually arise out of negotiation rather than out of the litigated cases. I would say one of the biggest changes in Canada and one of the most under-discussed changes in Canada is the successful negotiation of modern treaties across large parts, particularly of Northern Canada, some other parts uh, of British Columbia uh, in some smaller areas there. But we have some communities that are really positioned for some transformative changes in the years ahead in terms of their position on participation in the resource economy. The development of a, of a new territory in, in Nunavut, there's some really interesting potential there as well. And uh, a bit of a different, in a different way than in some of the modern treaty areas that have, uh, that have been negotiated. But I think one of the things we'll see both in some of those areas, but also in the context of some communities that have moved forward successfully in some of their negotiations with industry already and have thus acquired more of a capital base already, is I think we're going to see some communities engage in indigenous-led development that's a very different kind of phenomenon than we've seen before. Some, some communities are positioning themselves very successfully to lead up resource development projects or, or resource transportation projects and I think that's transformative for Canada in some ways and a very important development that we're seeing. But I think the other thing that we're going to see is huge disparity between different communities, depending whether they've positioned themselves to participate in the natural resource economy or other sources of economic growth or whether they've not. And that's going to present some real policy challenges in terms of inequalities between different Indigenous communities. And we already have that to some extent. I mean, we have Indigenous communities in Canada where the average family income is $200,000, well above the Canadian average uh, in some very successful communities that have done some positive things, that have had good leadership, and that have taken these steps forward in terms of economic growth. And we also have large numbers of Indigenous communities in Canada where the average family income is under $20,000, and we have some desperate poverty challenges. And this, this is going to present some really significant issues uh, in the years ahead. At the international level, I think uh, we might see some of the same kind of thing. In, uh, in some places, we're going to see Indigenous-led development, Indigenous-supported development. In other places, we're going to see that not occurring, and uh, we're going to see some real disparities between the situation of different communities that arises, and that presents some policy challenges uh, in the years ahead as well. Uh, in terms of other changes that we might see, I'd just say a lot of this depends on a lot of different developments and less probably hinges on the law than on efforts of communities and maybe smaller and less, less exciting legal changes, but legal reforms to facilitate 
an economic environment for communities, more so than the big constitutional changes or more so than big legal transformations around the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but very practical changes to facilitate Indigenous business, to facilitate Indigenous economic growth for communities that want to pursue that at very granular levels of legal reform. I think that may actually be the place where we see the law developing, but that's a lot of that's going to be through hard work as between governments and Indigenous communities to find practical ways forward oriented to opening opportunities for economic growth while respecting different cultural values. And I think that's one of the, uh, the under-discussed areas where law matters is in these very uh, tangible spots where that can open up opportunities. Right, that's very excellent, very helpful. One last really quick question. How does Canada sit in terms of its indigenous relationship with the natural resource economy relative to other indigenous populations around the world? Are we lagging behind the best case scenarios? Are we leading the country, leading internationally in terms of these both legal and practical parameters? How's Canada doing? Uh, well, that's a complicated question to answer because uh, there's always room certainly for Canada to do better than it's doing. And there are things in Canada that uh, very rightly deserve critique and criticism, but Canada is doing a lot of very positive things and on a lot of fronts is actually a leader in terms of the engagement of Indigenous communities in new opportunities. There are things we can continue to learn from other countries that are doing some good things, but Canada is doing a lot of good things. We shouldn't forget that, even at the same time that we continue to, to offer critique and continue to, uh, to seek improvements to what's going on in Canada at the same time. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Dwight. You're very helpful. You took a very complicated area of study and sort of made it, made it uh, very easy to understand and comprehend. It'll fit in very nicely with the rest of the conversations we're having today here in, in Ottawa. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, Dwight Newman is a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights at the College of Law, the University of Saskatchewan. He's also a Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, thank you again, Dwight, very much.